0: The almost unspeakable. We are all evil The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons
1: hello there welcome to the bad taste crime podcast i'm janelle i'm vicky how you doing vicky i'm
0: i'm doing all right you'll you'll probably notice we're still uh
1: trapped in the closet from home <laughs> oh just me i'm trapped in the closet
0: <laughs> trapped in a closet oh god that's probably not a very pc reference anymore is it
1: <laughs> no see that's why i didn't sing it. it i just i'm just trapped inside of a closet <laughs>
0: um anyway yes we're still recording from home but that's okay i think we've got all the cakes worked out finally
1: (laughs) yeah yeah you know it just takes eight tries before we can get it marginally (laughs) correct
0: (laughs) yeah um well we've got a great show for you if this is your first time listening a special hello to you um i guess let's head over to the newsroom
1: Watching our
0: while some local tells us that today we had 15 and 63 bad, worse than bad. this week, our news comes from Riverside, California, where police were <laughs> doing a drug sting. Mm-hmm. This one just really cracks me up <laughs> they were doing a drug sting where they were selling. Um, it, so it was meant for like a drug ring kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they sold their suspect 60 pounds of methamphetamine. Okay. And then they lost him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're trying to identify these narcotic traffickers. And so these undercover agents were selling drugs to the suspected narcotics Uh, trafficker Mm -hmm. and as soon as the drugs were sold the suspect quickly drove off and pretty much like lost police and they're just like yeah we don't know where he is now oh my god
1: he had that you know like that meth speed (laughs) the
0: the meth speed you feed the meth into the car
1: yeah and if you're also on it you do things really quickly so there you go
0: (laughs) oh my gosh i just think like what happened? I, You know, I know things go wrong, but, like, that feels like a big thing to go. They probably
1: didn't horribly, have enough, like, wrong. backup or something, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What else? Oh, Netflix and Kill. That's right. <laughs> we forgot how to do this. <laughs> this is how our show goes. Yes. This week on Netflix and Kill, we are talking about FIFA Uncovered. Have you watched this? I have not. so this is a relatively i mean in the grand scheme old it's like a year old Mm -hmm. um documentary that sort of looks at the history of fifa and the rampant corruption that has happened in the more recent years Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because fifa has this weird like tie into all of these political things happening so even though it is an international soccer organization like the ties that they have to political organizations in various nations and the way those political connections play into people getting a bid to host the world cup Mm -hmm. is like crazy like I'm talking high-level corruption. And they interview these people that have been accused of corruption. That I think he's still the current head of FIFA, um, who's been accused of bribes and all this other crazy shit, are all interviewed in this documentary, and they all pretty much adamant, adamantly deny that anything is going wrong. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> on camera. <laughs> Like, it's fine. It's all good. This is none of this is illegal. I have nothing to do with any of the like things and money being pumped into these countries. But there was an FBI investigation and people were charged by the FBI uh, for various, you know, fraudulent things. Mm -hmm. Um, There might have been some like RICO act in there. This just happened a few years ago. Anyway, if you're into like, fraud or corruption
1: yeah I just I don't like soccer so (laughs) that's why I didn't watch it
0: that's fair I will say it is way less about soccer Mm -hmm. and it's more about like FIFA itself as an organization and the way that they conduct their business which is a lot of political I mean it is a lot of political favors and money moving hands and being pushed into soccer programs Mm -hmm. to be used for whatever you know so I would say even if you're not into soccer and you're not really into sports, this is still a really great documentary because it's not really about soccer. It's more about the the organization mm-hmm. of FIFA. Okay. Yeah. I would I would say check it out. Um that's on Netflix. <laughs> it's nice. got it's got a pretty good, you know, interesting. You there are some subtitles I will warn also because right. you know FIFA's, yeah,
1: is very international.
0: <laughs> all right, moving right along. Uh, this show may not be appropriate for all audiences. Wait, what do I normally say? I feel like I've never recorded this podcast before. Um, <laughs> Ten, anyway. Not for all listeners. <laughs> yes. We are talking about what this week, Janelle?
1: Well, you know, I've been experiencing a lot of toxic masculinity for the past couple years. <laughs> so i thought we couple could days
0: couple years right couple lifetimes I mean,
1: it's been really bad the past couple weeks um but i thought we could talk about male murder suicide so that we can get a better idea of why these men be out here in these streets you know what i'm saying
0: <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> right 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 we've covered i thought this wasn't it you know it seems it's weirdly common but like yeah So it's so common that sometimes the stories are just blurbs now. So like researching could be a little tricky. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. I have some statistics and they're gross. Um, (laughs) Like we've covered this before and I've mentioned some data previously, but I just kind of wanted to refresh that information before we go into a, you know, a case that has for me that I'm covering is pretty recent. Um, And it's going to talk a little bit about like, you know, things that people in domestic, you know, violent relationships can do. So um, just to kind of recap what murder-suicide is all about, um, there are close to 600 murder-suicides that occur yearly in the United States. Wow. And of those 600 murder-suicides that occur yearly, that accounts for 1,000 to 1,500 deaths in the united states a year so multiple people being murdered at least two if not more yeah so what really i think is the issue a lot with murder suicide is that usually it involves a domestic setting a domestic relationship and law enforcement who deal with these kinds of cases when they first come in as like a domestic assault or such um They don't do a very good job of taking it seriously or really doing their due diligence in most cases. Um, Mm -hmm. 65% of the murder suicide events involve intimate partners, and 81% of them incur in the partner's homes. So
0: that sounds about right.
1: Yeah. The perpetrators of these kind of domestic murder-suicide events are pretty much, for the most part, I would say, um, well over 75% adult, older, non-Hispanic white men is what is listed. Mm. And a fun fact is that is also the largest demographic of people who commit suicide in the United States. So just plain suicide.
0: Yeah, <laughs> not the everything bagel that
1: is murder suicide.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, honestly, like the overlap makes sense to me. Yeah, like, uh huh. <laughs> it does make sense.
1: It's all that lead. No, that was that was <laughs> just my comment. It's not statistically in here. Um, <laughs> so the National Violent Death Reporting System um, kind of tracks nationally some of these occurrences and the data set that i pulled was from 2003 to 2005 and within that data set it's accounted for 91.4 percent of murder suicides were committed by males 97.6 percent uh were committed by males over the age of 19 and 77 percent were identified as white so we got a problem (laughs) yeah and the numbers statistically now are relatively the same but It's kind of good to ask yourself, you know, why? Why is this an occurrence? What is Mm -hmm. causing this? This is still something that's debated um, significantly. So, like, you know, previously people would say, oh, it's the pressures of men to uphold the household and to have a job and to make the money. But we don't see that now. Like a few of the familicides, murder-suicides, patricides that we have covered in the past, yes, it was a lot of men losing their job, not being able to take care of their family. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, it's a little bit different. It's usually, you know, kind of occurring around partners who are separating and the wife has a job and is doing her own thing and is making money and taking care of the kids. And it's more of an equally shared labor So I don't really think that that applies much anymore. So it's kind of interesting to see that the statistics of this are growing, like are growing, like there's more murder suicides happening and by, you know, older white men. So what is the causation now, right? If we take that Mm -hmm. factor out of it. Yeah. So I'm going to cover a murder suicide case out of Michigan. And I kind of wrote this in a very different way. Um, I wanted to start it with some descriptions of uh, two people who were killed. So Tyranny Lee Hunt Savage was born in Alma, Michigan, to her parents, Mark and Kim. Um, She graduated from St. Louis High School in 2004, and she lived in Houghton Lake, Michigan. Tyranny was a devoted mother. She had a son named Dayton Cowdery. They were very, very close. Tyranny was employed at Mid-Michigan Community Health Services of Houghton Lake as a manager of case care management. She had a bachelor's of science in nursing from Eastern Michigan Michigan University, and she put herself through college. She had separated from her uh, first husband, who um, was the father of Dayton and was kind of doing her own thing, put herself through college. Mm -hmm. At the time of her death, she was currently studying – um, an MSN MBA uh, at Purdue University Global. She was described as an overachiever who was very involved in her community and even became an ordained minister. Dayton James Cowdery was born in Alma, Michigan in August of 2008. Um, he is the son of James and tyranny. Uh, Dayton had a love for animals. He often um, went to rescue shelters. He had rescued animals. Um And their names are very cute. Khaleesi, Coco, and Loki. (laughs) Love
0: me a good Game of Thrones reference. Right?
1: (laughs) Um, He loved spending time outdoors and playing ball, riding uh, dirt bikes. He also enjoyed fishing, mushroom hunting, and sledding. He enjoyed semi-tractors and uh, semi-trucks and tractors with his dad and grandfather. You know, like those big, like, speedway events. Yeah. And he was a typical teenager who enjoyed playing video games. Now, these descriptions were from the obituaries of Tyranny in Dayton. Um, Tyranny Savage was 35 years old at the time of her death, and she was one of four people found dead in a murder-suicide at her home in Houghton Lake, Michigan, on July tenth, two 2022. They were murdered by her estranged second husband, Robert Bo Savage.
0: Mm.
1: Now, I also kind of took some information about beau savage from his obituary and i thought it was really interesting that they also his family also put together this very intensive obituary because a lot of times when people murder other people or commit suicides they generally put little to no information in their obituaries but this had a lot of info so i was like this is interesting Oh, my gosh. So, um, Robert Bo Savage was born May 11th, 1987. He was the son of Mark and Diane. He attended Collins Elementary and Houghton Houghton Lake Middle School before attending Houghton Lake High School for a year. He graduated from Houghton Lake Community Education, which is like a – I forget what the term is – where you get a GED. There's like a specific term for the GED schools. So it was a GED gotcha. school. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. After which he moved to East Lansing and then returned back to Houghton Lake and worked at Abel's and Family Fair as a meat cutter for several years. He attended uh, Kirtland Community College and graduated with cum laude honors. He worked at a family fair of Ross Commons during the pandemic as a meat manager. In 2019, he moved to Florida and worked for a major supermarket as a butcher and counterperson. And he returned to Houghton Lake in 2020 and started his own business, Comic Printing, uh, where he specialized in signage and t-shirts. So. Okay. That's like a very, that sounds like a resume. (laughs)
0: Yeah. More than an obituary. I mean, it's very neutral. Right. I will say that. Mm -hmm. There is not anything of like... Um, you know, he was a kind, you know, full of life person. It's just like, here's his life. He cut meat and he
1: went to Mm -hmm. school. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the extent of that. Um, now due to the nature of the case and how like recent it was, there's not a whole lot of background information on their marriage, but Mm -hmm. both Bo and Tyranny had previously had long-term relationships before they married each other. Um, The couple had been married since 2014, but were separated and began divorce proceedings in 2022. Tyranny Savage requested a court-ordered personal protection order against her husband on June 24th of 2022. And in the court document, Savage stated that she was getting divorced after discovering her husband was having an affair. So I'm going to quote this document. Quote, he has mental health issues, he quit taking his medication, and he recently purchased a firearm, and this is concerning to me. He keeps saying he's going to blow his brains out, and I do not want my, the safety of me or my son in jeopardy. So, wow, yeah. <laughs> um, Just two days later, Tyranny Savage called dispatchers um, on June 26th while she was away from home. She said her estranged husband, Beau, was verbally threatening her. And according to the County Central Dispatch, she said that she had filed a request for protection only two days earlier. She again called 911 a short time later, following, saying that she her husband was at her home slamming stuff around um, and screaming and yelling. Oh my so goodness. She officially gets him removed from the home. Um, And they officially separate on June 27th of 2022. Now, like like, I was digging through a lot of the info and there was not, like I said, a whole lot of background information. I was able to find some things, but not as much as you would for cases that have been around for, you know, five years or so.
0: Right, right. But what
1: I did find, I uncovered an article, uh, actually quite a few articles, about Beau Savage. um, And it stated that he was a registered sex offender.
0: Okay.
1: So he had been wow. convicted in Rose Common County Circuit Court in June of 2005 of fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct using force or coercion. Oh now,
0: my gosh. Wait, it didn't, when did they get married?
1: 2014.
0: Okay, so this is like way before that. Even but before if you think that. about it,
1: um he would have been 18 or 19 in 2005, so t- still oh. a teenager. It didn't state any info on the extent of the conviction, but This was way before they got married. He was 18 or 19 years old. This charge was considered a high court misdemeanor. Um, So the conviction would not really do much in the ways of him not being able to have like a gun or anything. Um, Okay. Which I think is important to note because using force or coercion with sexual misconduct, you know,
0: not far away from
1: using a weapon. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, the misdemeanor, though, would not allow someone to have, like, a conceal-and-carry license, but they could still purchase a gun, so, like, whatever. Okay. Now... That's rough. That's
0: kind of stupid.
1: <laughs> yep. Now, Tyranny's court-ordered protection was viewed by a judge, Judge Troy B. Daniels, and the judge found, stated that he found insufficient evidence to kind of allow for the order of protection to be (laughs) um allowed basically so the he said the petitioner can (laughs) request this is so i can't even like say it's so fucked up so he denied it and then he said in his statement the petitioner can request a restraining order in her divorce case oh my god so basically passing the buck saying i'm not going to deal with this she can ask for it when she starts divorce proceedings
0: Okay, what is she supposed to do until then? Isn't that the whole point? Is she was doing it while she started a divorce procedure? Right. Okay. Right. Okay.
1: (laughs) So she wasn't able to officially file for divorce until July 7th of 2022. So this is where things get out of control. We're gonna, I'm just going to explain a little bit of a difference between what an order of protection and a restraining order is. There's some differences. And then we'll kind of see what happened to Tyranny after she filed for divorce on July 7th. Now, unlike restraining orders, orders of protection refer to very specific kinds of orders meant to protect someone from domestic violence, um, usually coming from another member of the household in which they live together orders of protection are easier to enforce than restraining orders and they come with more severe penalties i'm not entirely sure why the judge denied this because bo savage did have a history of violence and was a registered fucking sex offender um so it doesn't make just, sense to me
0: i just feel like it means they didn't sufficiently look into like oh they his didn't record yeah at they all. didn't
1: even look at all um yeah. restraining orders may be used to keep someone from doing something harmful to you. So they're a little bit more broad. Um, That usually means something like, you know, the examples they gave were canceling an insurance policy, turning off someone's utilities, and other typically non-violent actions um, that a spouse may take against a former spouse. So under this would fall stalking. Um, So It's harmful, but not necessarily violent. But we all know that generally stalking leads to violent acts. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Now, they were in Michigan. And in Michigan, there's two kinds of uh, personal protection orders. They call them PPO's. There is a non-domestic sexual assault PPO, which can protect you from someone who was convicted in court of sexually assaulting you. It can also protect you from someone who has sexually assaulted you or threatened to do so, even if that person wasn't convicted of a crime. So that's one possibility. Okay. If you have a domestic relationship with a person who um, threatened you, you could also file for a domestic relationship PPO, Um, This kind of is described as a protection order against your spouse or ex-spouse, your child's other parent, someone who lived with you now or used to live with you, and someone you are dating or used to date. And it doesn't just include sexual assault. It also includes, like, like actual violence. So I believe that she filed for the domestic relationship PPO. But with his, his history of sexual assault, I'm wondering if the non-domestic sexual assault PPO could have been another
0: option. Can you file for both?
1: I don't know about that. But since one was overturned or not allowed, you know, mm. I'm wondering if she could have filed a follow-up one for the other type of PPO. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I don't
1: know. Maybe she didn't have a very good lawyer.
0: Yeah, that's – honestly, <laughs> a lot of – from from what I understand, a lot of times when people are filing these kinds of protection orders, they're filing them themselves. Yeah. Like, it is mm-hmm. not, like, uh, go-get-an-attorney thing, unless maybe if you have, like, a divorce attorney that would advise so that you do something that. like this, yeah. maybe they would help. But typically, it's, like, sort of a, uh, a um like, quick thing that's happening that you're just filing yourself. So, I mean – and this kind of shit is hard for people to like the layperson to to wrap their head around. Like yeah. it's it is complicated. Even the most simple stuff can be really really complicated. So mm-hmm.
1: now tyranny had mentioned that Bo had taken um, their dog from her home, had stalked her. Like all of these things were put in her initial complaint, which further confuses me as to why it wasn't taken seriously. But in her divorce proceeding, she actually stated additional details and information about the violence. Um, She stated, quote, he became verbally violent and kept throwing his fists like he was going to hit me. He called me a cunt, a whore, a piece of shit and told me I will need a a protection order because I have no idea what I just started.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) So, Yup. Yo.
1: now she also stated quote, i asked him to be civil for the divorce and asked him to leave the house and he refused she added i left and have been getting texts accusing me of being with other people and he has now been texting my friends threatening them because he thinks they told me to leave him
0: oh my god
1: yeah on july 10th 2022 beau savage showed up to where tyranny savage was living with her son dayton and her mother kim lynette elbright um, who was 58 years old, so they were kind of all living together while she was trying to get this divorce going and figure out what to do. Bo Savage burst into the front door and shot all three family members and then himself. Now, this case was actually pretty big news in the small town of Michigan where they lived. And when the news articles came out days later showing that Tyranny Savage had petitioned for a PPO, people started flooding like Facebook and newspaper article pages and leaving comments. So I just wanted to (laughs) I wanted to read some of the comments um, because I thought this was absurd. The responses people were. So like one of them was from Yahoo News and one of them was a series of comments from Facebook. Um, So this (laughs) this is from Skeeter um on july 20th 2022 skeeter. although a protection order is useless and wouldn't have stopped this i don't understand why each and every protection order isn't granted if i want someone to stay away from me why can't i have that why should someone i don't want around me for any reason have the right to come near me of course i get As for i get it if you work together you can't keep someone from their job living arrangements are also an issue to be dealt with on a case-to-case basis but nobody should be denied a protection order julie responded to skeeter And said, because women are not taken seriously, our society still treats us like hysterical children incapable of rational thought. It is more important in our culture to avoid inconveniencing a man than it is to protect a woman. It is the same reason women suffer so much harassment online, because site admins don't want to inconvenience or censor men, even if those men are willfully and with full intent actively harassing and stalking women. Our safety doesn't mean anything. We are supposed to just ignore it and let men do whatever they want so that was interesting a pretty accurate i think response that
0: julie gave um yeah for the most part yeah i mean i i totally understand like there is an issue with women being viewed as just like overreacting or hysterical mm -hmm. people now that being said i will say i don't feel like necessarily every single order of protection should be granted because there are cases of people just filing orders of protection against people for no reason frivolously and kind of like you know but if there is obvious evidence obvious like especially like in this case like he was a fucking sex offender and was on record like that should be very obvious to be like yes approve this to Mm -hmm. me I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think honestly having <laughs> now worked in uh workers compensation for like the last year mm-hmm. and seeing the amount of like frivolous claims yeah. coming up. I'm like, I'm not saying it's like a huge issue, but like there is something to be said for vetting because like, I also know, especially in our area, there are people who just like to cause problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> for maybe political reasons maybe just a disagreement you know and but there are tons of legitimate claims too like that's kind of
1: yeah i know people who have who were in a love triangle and like one person to like threatened to order a a protection order against the other person because she was fucking her boyfriend <laughs> you know what i mean like right nonsense pure nonsense it's right. like obviously right. just not I mean, not a useful part of a a protection order,
0: <laughs> right? And frankly, when you have that, like, if you are getting any sort of like frivolous or false claim, like it's wasting the court's time, which is oh, yeah. essentially wasting public money. And
1: the the dumb thing is, like that protection order, they they put that through, like that went through,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I just do crazy, right? And then you you read something like this, where it's like a woman who is being like actively threatened, and they're like, nah. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't right. it doesn't make any sense. Right. There was one more comment that um, was left by someone from the United Kingdom um, whose name was Cowboys 22. Um, okay. and, he, and he stated, or I'm assuming it's a he, this is too common yeah. where a person asks for a restraining order, having it denied and then is murdered. Now, they didn't ask for a restraining order, but, you know, they're in the UK. So we'll give them a pass. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, he had a point. Mm-hmm. Like, how many people have put in an order of protection or a restraining order against someone who was stalking them or actively abusing them and then were later killed like so right. fucking many mm-hmm. <laughs> I was watching um, there was a, a new TV series about the playboy murder so it was like a mm. each episode was a different playboy murder and mm-hmm. almost all of them had you know had some sort of restraining or order protection order against one or multiple people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and all of those women wound up dead <laughs> So, like, what's
0: the I, fuck? I think that's why. I mean, we have, I would say, in the last probably five years or so, seen uh, more advocacy and stricter stalking laws coming into play. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think it's happening more frequently and better in the United Kingdom, interestingly enough, than it is yeah. actually in the U.S. Because, quite frankly, they have other things coming up every day that are. <sighs> I don't know. It's crazy living in the United States right now. But
1: yeah, <laughs> that's that's a very nice way of saying
0: it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, I don't want to say that are just they're they're just as important. I mean, we were talking about fucking kids dying like once a week at least from fucking school shootings. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Like, how, how do you break that in importance? I don't fucking know. But the point is, is we have seen this come up in like political conversations more and more frequently with. Um, trying to pass more more strict stalking laws because mm-hmm. it is such an issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So to kind of end this out, after this happened, the judge who um, denied her protection order, like there was a bunch of investigations into him. I haven't heard anything yet, but people were kind of calling to have him investigated because of this um, mm. and for people to you know, consider orders of protection and restraining orders and get assistance with them. There was a couple people who – there was a domestic violence uh, organization who stated if you need help filing or want, um, you know, extra assistance with being protected, please contact us. We have people who can help you. So at least what came out of this was a little bit more awareness in the state of Michigan about restraining orders, orders of protection, and Mm -hmm. people – Holding those judges accountable for denying them. Agreed. And that's it. (laughs) And that's my episode. Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) Okay, Janelle, we are going to go back in time a little bit. Okay. To early 1900s Germanton, North Carolina. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, and we are going to be talking about the Lawson family murders. Okay. Um, so, uh, Germanton, North Carolina, that's where the Lawson family uh, resided. Charlie and Fanny Lawson were married in 1911 and had eight children although one of them unfortunately died at the age of six from pneumonia. In 1918, Charlie had moved the entire family to Germanton to start uh, share cropping tobacco. And it seems like they were relatively successful because by 1927, they had saved up enough money to buy their own farm on Brook Cove Road. So, they all got to work on renovating the farmhouse on the property, which was in dire need of repairs and improvements. And during these renovations, Charlie accidentally hit himself in the head with an axe while removing some <laughs> rotten timbers. I'm sorry. <gasps> what? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming like the the like the blunt, blunt end. end. Yeah, okay. yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This will become a thing later. But mm-hmm. he has this head injury. And later on, people would say that his personality started changing around this time. Uh-oh. Classic head bonk. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> put put Just put a pin in that. Okay. So just before Christmas... Charlie decided to take the entire family into uh, Winston-Salem where he splurged and bought everybody brand new clothes. Um, This is definitely something that people were like, it's really unusual to do, especially when you take into account that this was a working class farming family with um, eight people total Hmm. Uh, going in and just like dropping that amount of money at one time is not an easy thing like that's not something that would have been com- common mm-hmm. so he buys them all new clothes and then takes the family to have their portrait taken as an early christmas treat family yeah. portrait okay um, classic this sears very... jc moment got it <laughs> yes yes um this is something that does kind of seem a little suspicious in light of what happens <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. next Um, but they get this portrait taken so on Christmas morning uh, 17 year old Marie woke early to bake a cake for the family at some point her younger sister's 12 year old Carrie and seven year old Mabel uh, left to visit their aunt and uncle who lived close by however What they didn't know at the time was, as they left, their father, Charlie, was waiting for them near the tobacco barn. And when the two little girls came into view, he shot them to death with a 12-gauge shotgun before bludgeoning them with a blunt weapon. Hmm. He then moved their bodies inside of the tobacco barn, um, went towards the house where he shot Fanny, his wife, who had been sitting on the porch. The sounds of the gunshot going off startled Marie, uh, who, of course, had been baking inside. And so he went in, shot her dead as well. He then began searching the house, eventually finding four-year-old James and two-year-old Raymond, who, after hearing the gunshots outside, had tried to hide in, like, the cabinets in the house. And then, finally, he found their four-month-old child, Mary Lou, who, rather than shooting, he uh, beat to death. Charlie then ran into the nearby woods where he shot himself. The Mm -hmm. only survivor of the entire family was 16-year-old Arthur, who was not at home when Charlie massacred the rest of the family. Um, There are some... And this this is very common with research from the early 1900s, is... There's some conflicting reports and some conflicting uh, stories about where Charlie was exactly. But he was either out hunting rabbits or he had been sent to town on an errand by his father. It's kind of unclear. Um, But either way, he was not at home when all of this happened. Mm -hmm. There's another point where stories conflict are... Uh, Who actually found the family? It seems that it was either Arthur when he returned home or other relatives who were visiting the farmstead. Remember, the aunt and uncle lives very nearby. There are people coming to the house um, for Christmas festivities. So, uh, but all of the bodies were found with their arms crossed and their heads had been laid on pillows, except for the two girls in the barn who had been laid on rocks as if they were pillows. Hmm. Um, Authorities were alerted and went to the farmstead where Arthur was waiting for them. And of course the word had spread of these horrific slayings. And so naturally people from town came by to see what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is, this is actually, so this is actually why I covered this because sort of the aftermath is like very strange. Um, Police began looking at the scene while, while they're sort of there investigating the initial scene, they hear the gunshots in the distance followed by the howls of Charlie's beagles, which they follow to find uh, Charlie's body. So he had actually just, like by the time police get there, he had just escaped into the woods um, before he committed suicide. And so when they found Charlie's body, they they also found letters to his parents and a note that said, blame nobody but I. Now, of course, because we're in old-timey days and people back then were morbid as hell, um, the bystanders began taking things from the Lawson farmstead as souvenirs. Oh, God damn it! not this. <laughs> Literally. So there were reports of people using a coal shovel to scoop up the blood from the floor to keep in jars— that has since been, like, passed down through their family as, an like, an heirloom of this horrific murder. Um, people peeling the bark off of the tree where Ch- Charlie shot himself and even taking the raisins off of the cake that Marie had been baking and was cooling on the windowsill.
1: Fucking gross,
0: man! <sighs> right? It's just, I don't know, the logic of walking into something like this and just, like, taking shit. I don't know. That's weird. It is. It's really fucking weird. So the Lawson family um, was buried in a single mass grave, all of them together, uh, on December 27th, 1929, so when you were talking about the, um the obituary mm-hmm. that had been written, and like, you thought it was kind of interesting, because, you know, typically with something gruesome like that, like, you don't advertise it in the paper, I guess.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. right.
0: <laughs> and even that it, I, I, I don't know, it's just like, my this is one of those weird things for me where they still buried everybody together. Yeah. um I mean, I like, can oh, understand. They're family. you know right right um i can understand like burying fanny and all of the children together but like i don't know i don't know it just seems strange um the funeral itself had anywhere i saw numbers everywhere from 1500 to 5000 onlookers oh jesus okay many of many of them were people from like out of town who had heard about it in the news and were like let's go check out this funeral." just
1: love a good funeral um, hop you know
0: yeah it, it's just it's very it seems very inappropriate uh now planet slade included a quote from winston-salem journal that reported at the time quote from hillside and valley from hamlet and city they gathered for three miles along the road cars were parked while men and women, many with babies in their arms, made their way through the mud to the cemetery. There they crammed and jammed to get a glimpse of the seven caskets and turned their ears to hear the tributes played. End quote. (laughs) So it's like this huge thing. To add to sort of the weirdness of all of this, Charlie's brother, Marion, who lived in a nearby homestead decided to open the cabin for tours as a way to earn Arthur money to keep the family's homestead and land and like pay the mortgage on the land. So just 10 days after the murders, 10 days, Marion opened the cabin for tours, charging 25 cents a pop oh my god <laughs> okay right yeah um and it, this this is where they kind of they talked about um he put the cake that uh marie had been baking under glass and that's like where people were coming in and stealing the raisins off the cake yeah yeah <laughs> so Very absurd. Weird. Okay. um <laughs> In 1930, the Lawson family's belongings were auctioned off with people getting into massive bidding wars over things like the murder weapons and anything else that was, like, involved in the killings at the time. Mm-hmm. Marion and Arthur uh, followed all of this up by taking some of the other belongings that they were able to salvage. Um with them in a traveling tent show where they would exhibit the items for people to see at stuff like fairs and County shows. Yeah. They talk about like, they had the crib and they had some, I I mean, it's just like, I don't, I don't know. At that, there's part of me that feels like at that point is who is this serving anymore? Exactly.
1: No one. But I mean, like, was a different time and like people say that true crime and things now is out of control but this morbidity has been in us for centuries and i believe it was even worse back then than it is now now it just seems that way because we have social media and Mm -hmm. you know digital marketing and all of these things accessibility back then it was like you just hope and prayed it was local
0: right (laughs) Yeah, now you just don't have to show up in person to gawk at the morbidity. Exactly. Now you can just Google it. <laughs> exactly. Google the morbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the many, many years since the murders, there have been obviously a lot of questions um, and very few answers as to why Charlie suddenly decided to murder his whole family, right? It seemed like this very uh, out-of-nowhere thing. The first... and Honestly, what seemed to be the most obvious to neighbors and townsfolk was a bout of sudden insanity. Classic. (laughs) Classic sudden insanity. This was even reported as fact by newspapers at the time, like Charlie Lawson and his sudden insanity. However, a subsequent autopsy of Charlie's brain by Johns Hopkins Hospital did not show Any abnormalities that would point to this like sudden insanity as the cause, even with the head injury not long before the murders, like they did not see anything that that would have caused that. There was also a theory uh, floating around that Charlie had actually witnessed something to do with organized crime that he was not supposed to see. And so the entire family was killed in retaliation.
1: But aren't they from a tiny town? Like, where is he seeing yeah.
0: this? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. It's a flimsy theory. Where is he seeing the really not- organized crime in his small town? I feel like when anything, like, weird happened around this time, everyone was like, it's the mob. It's gotta be the mob. They travel so far to get people, yeah. you know? <laughs> I bet you, I bet you he saw something he wasn't supposed to. It's mob. Yeah. <laughs> So it wasn't actually until 1990 when the book um, White Christmas, Bloody Christmas by M. Bruce Jones and Trudy J. Smith was released uh, that another seemingly more plausible theory came to light. Mm-hmm. It's also worth, worth noting that Trudy Smith released a revised version of the book in 2006 called The Meaning of Our Tears. Um, but both of these sort of look at this case um, and the Lawson family and sort of why this might've happened. Mm -hmm. So this is from Southern calls quote, according to the story, Stella Lawson, a relative who had been interviewed for the book called the author and said she had overheard Fanny's sisters in law and aunts, including Stella's mother, Jetty Lawson discussing how Fanny had confided in them that she was concerned about an incestuous relationship between Charlie and Marie. Oh boy. I don't know why incest keeps coming up in my research. It's not on purpose. I, swear. <laughs> I promise. Sure? <laughs> <laughs> this claim means that at least a year before the Lawson family was murdered, Fanny had concerns about an incestuous relationship. Um And then, when the revised version of the book was released in two thousand and six, it contained even more support for this theory again from um Southern Call's quote, a close friend of Marie Lawson's Ella May disclosed that a few weeks before Christmas, Marie told her she was pregnant with her father's baby and that Charlie and Fanny both knew about it. Oh, honey, no, hmm so the thinking behind this is that Charlie felt like he needed to kill the family so that the secret of their baby did not get out.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, you um, didn't really have to kill everybody,
0: <laughs> you know. Well, he did. I mean, Arthur is still alive; was still alive. Yeah,
1: but I mean, like, you could have remedied. You could have sent her away. You know, like you, there's other things mm-hmm. you could do. <laughs> you could have right. killed like, they, yourself.
0: They were literally pros at hiding babies back then.
1: Yeah. It wasn't that like, hard. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no. I just found it out here somewhere
0: <laughs> in the woods. This yeah. baby. <laughs> um, there was another neighbor, Sam Hill, that claimed um, that Charlie had told Marie there would be some, quote, killing done if she told anybody about the pregnancy. <laughs> oh, boy. So that now seems to be sort of the Uh, more why i think i think people are kind of split between the sudden insanity claim and the incest Mm -hmm. claim like it seems like those are the two main theories as to why charlie just sort of snapped one day any any thoughts on either
1: i mean incest usually you know is a good reason i guess (laughs) (laughs) how to put that (laughs) right yeah yeah um that seems plausible
0: more so anyway right um and obviously like they didn't necessarily have a reason to do autopsies at the time Mm -hmm, exactly Um, they did autopsies at all because you know they they it was it was very obvious what had happened um so I would have been curious to know if she... Like, if they had done an autopsy, if she was pregnant. But frankly, we will never know. It's one of those things that we can only ever speculate about, unfortunately. To end, I want to play a bit of a murder ballad about this tragedy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Did you know... Okay, so... I have to say, I did not realize that there was this subgenre of music called murder ballads, Um, but it is 100% a thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Is this a current subgenre or a subgenre back then?
0: I believe this is a a subgenre back then. Okay.
1: Um, That makes sense. There was
0: a lot of songs written about, you know, murder. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm these like twangy things so in 1930 um, the murder of the Lawson family was recorded by the Carolina Buddies and it was later covered by the Stanley Brothers in 1956 Um, so I want to play a little bit for you do you want to hear you have a choice we could do you want to hear the 1930 version or the 1956 version um let's
1: go 1956 I bet it's a little rock and roll
0: Okay, here we go. Here we go.
1: It was home on Christmas evening the snow.
0: all right that's enough of that.
1: <laughs> that is the most North Carolina thing I've ever heard. Right, <laughs> and I know and again, because this is I like, have family from North Carolina.
0: <laughs> yeah, and even the old version, like the the original version, is sort of it's a little slower tempoed, but it's still that like twangy, Foxy. like mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, and that's so that's a murder ballad,
1: <laughs> <Sick>. also.
0: <laughs> you know, and so I feel like after hearing that, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I remember like some of these. Sort of, I don't know, people were just saying about murders back in the day. It was very topical. You could get it on the radio, you know, or on vinyl or whatever the fuck you did back then.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it was anyway. the Victrola. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that is uh the story of the Lawson family murders. I guess before you decide to. um, Don't. Don't say it. Don't. don't Just don't. Don't say it. (laughs) Uh, Check out this podcast.
1: (laughs) Need an escape? Vanish into the depths of a magic forest. Head out on an interstellar repair mission. Travel back in time to change the future. Explore inside someone or something else. Meet dragons, werewolves, birds, bears, aliens, mermen, and a man with a fishbowl for a head. All in ten minutes or less every week tune in to 600 second saga for your weekly science fiction and fantasy escape.
0: Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> but that has been our show <laughs> in true fashion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Janelle,
1: what do we got? Anything? I mean, once again, there is a show yeah. in November and there will be details. <laughs>
0: Yeah, unfortunately, we just don't know too much right now, but mm-hmm. mark off all of November.
1: Yeah, just take it, take a, all the weekends off for us. <laughs> and that way you'll
0: just be ready when it happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I promise it will not be on Thanksgiving. Yeah, How about no, I love that. I can make that <laughs> promise. <laughs> um, well, cool. All right. I guess that means yep. our
1: podcast is it's over get the fuck out of here
0: it's over <laughs> our sound and editing is by tiff fullman our music is by jason zaksheski the enigma <laughs> 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 uh this has been the bad taste crime podcast we will see you in two weeks uh bye see <laughs>
1: ya It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We
0: are all evil We're in, in some
1: form or another.